The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So tonight's the last night for the series of talks that began in September. I've been reflecting on this practice of mindfulness uh, in a simple, pragmatic way in terms of the kind of questions that a human being might ask you know, as we open to our life. It's the kind of questions that would naturally arise. Like, for example, what am I actually interested in? What would be meaningful for me? In one way to, you know, one idea, one thought that might come up is, I'm interested in a full release, a full, full release of this mind or of this heart. A heart or mind that's not bound up due to my experience. And we talked about, you know, as we cultivate that aspiration to be released, to be free of weight, of agitation, as we reflect on that, we begin to notice that all of this weight, all of this agitation, it's always personal and it's always mental or psychological. It doesn't mean that we don't bump into problems in life, loss, physical pain. But when we actually honestly reflect what is the problem, the problem always is personal, and it's always something in the mind. I don't like my knee hurting. I don't want to lose my job. It looks like it's out there. But the actual tightness, the fear, the weight, the suffering is in the mind. And it really helps us now understand, well, why should we train the mind? Why should we work with this mind in the way that we do here? So we talked about this in September and October, that we're interested in training the mind because we understand that our mind, because of its conditioning, our mind has a habit of relating to life, has a habit of constructing weight, tightness, reactivity, all the different flavors of suffering. And even though it can seem rational to blame external things like our partners, like our society, like our boss. The one thing that seems to make sense the more we look is not to blame the mind, but to understand that the solution, the resolution to suffering, to stress, is in the mind. And I don't think you need to, I don't think it's useful actually to believe this. But I think what is useful is to open our minds enough so that we don't have this conviction that I have to fix the world in order to be happy. I have to fix my partner in order to be happy. I have to fix my life in order to be happy. That's a particular path for happiness. 
And if you follow that path and you pay attention, you'll probably notice how frustrating that path is. Because even when we do iron out one problem, inevitably there's something else that needs to be fixed or ironed out. Who do you know who's gotten to the end of fixing the world, fixing their life in that way? And I mentioned this a while back. I'll just repeat it. The Buddha said, you could either cover the world in leather or you could build yourself a pair of shoes. You know, what is the easiest, most effective way at dealing with the sharp pains that arise when we step on sharp objects? You know, it's not really possible to cover the world in leather. We can aspire to do that. We can undertake that project, but it's frustrating. But we, we have this capacity to, uh, you know, the metaphor for a pair of moccasins, of course, is wisdom. We can cultivate wisdom. A wisdom, a way of understanding our experience that is liberating, meaning the mind isn't going to fall into its habits of reactivity, of hatred, of greed, of confusion. So we came to this place, you know, and we all come to this place little by little. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes less clear, that this thing we call the mind or the heart, it needs some training. If we just let it act out, if we get identified with our conditioning and just allow it to act out, a lot of the times what our mind, our habit energy is expressing, it's not helpful for ourselves or others. We're just going to naturally express a lot of neediness or a lot of fear, a lot of hatred, a lot of anxiety, a lot of confusion. And because of the identification, that's who we are then. We are these different patterns of mind. So once we understand that living inside these various conditioned patterns is suffering, is actually the definition of suffering. Like a way to think about this is when we have a particularly narrow perspective or point of view, and then we live inside of it, take, uh, get identified with it, we suffer. A narrow, tight point of view is narrow and tight. And it doesn't work very well out in the world. So the world tends to react in a narrow and tight way when we're living out of a narrow and tight place. Right? So we, we just see it doesn't work. And then it begs the question, well, what is the alternative to living out of a narrow and tight place? Now, fortunately, we, at this point, you know, we hear some information usually. We bump up, because it's out there. I remember when I first got really excited about meditation back in the early 80s. It was just a couple years out of college, and I think 1982. And I remember uh, just feeling like I discovered meditation and made so much sense. And then the most, one of the most shocking things in those first months of practicing was how could I have missed this for so long? Because when I looked back to my memory, I noticed I had bumped up against this many times. I'd heard about it. I had friends that were doing it. But, you know, it was just like, didn't connect. And then 
finally it connected and it seemed like the most relevant thing. And it was astounding to me that I had missed it for as long as I had missed it. Missed its relevance, this this training that we can do. Where we're, we're locating, seeing that the, the real foundation of suffering is this psychology of the mind. It's this activity of our mind. This is where we need to pay attention. And you see, this is not the kind of habit or conditioning we get in our culture. Our, you know, we're taught to seek happiness by manipulating the world, by creating a life that will be pleasant, will be fulfilling finding a partner that will be pleasant and fulfilling. I'm not saying that those things aren't pleasant. What I'm saying is trying to derive happiness from those things is fundamentally stressful. And it never, that stress never goes away. If you're trying, like if, for example, with our partners, If we're trying to extract some kind of permanent happiness from the relationship, well, if we look honestly, we'll see it's stressful. If we're trying to derive a a meaningful, lasting happiness from wealth, we'll see it's stressful. Because we can always imagine having more. We can always imagine it going away. This is true with anything out in the world. So here's the, you know, here's the the real turning point in our practice where we realize instead of working with the world in order to be happy, expecting the world, if we're fortunate enough, if we're clever enough to deliver happiness, we realize that the way to happiness is to cultivate an understanding that is in alignment with the world as it actually is. So even the notion that I'm unhappy, that's a huge presumption, you know, that I'm unhappy. Have you noticed that? It's like we have this thought. I mean, it's true we may be feeling what we're feeling, but this a, it's a huge construction to say I'm unhappy and to believe it, like I'm unhappy. So... Part of this training that we've been talking about is we realize that so many of the presumptions we make, we just live inside of. We just take uh, it personally, we get identified with it, and we assume it's how it is. So the basic training in the practice is to cultivate clear seeing. We want to see clearly how it is. We want to understand is the way I understand life, the way I relate to my experience, is it actually in alignment with the way it is? Because what the Buddha pointed out is we expect or we see things one way and reality is another way. And because of the dissonance, we work really hard to make our experience fit our expectations, the way we think things are. And it's that disconnection, that dissonance, that is the suffering we experience in life. We suffer 
because we're not in alignment. The mind or the understanding in the mind, the way we relate, the way we understand, doesn't fit the world. We think the world is the problem, you know, the fact that we have to make it fit the way we want it to be. You know, isn't it? It's so easy to blame the world. Like, it's so easy to blame the fact, to blame the world for not, not that much light this time of year, or not that much warmth this time of year. And to feel personally insulted by what's happening. <laughs> but what we don't, it doesn't occur to us that the attitude that it shouldn't be this way is actually the insult. This is what's off. The expectation is what's off. Or our friend doesn't treat us the way we want our friend to treat us because he or she is having a hard day or he or she is frustrated with us, doesn't like us anymore, whatever it might be. And it, it's so easy to be insulted and to feel put upon by that person. But it doesn't occur to us that the thought that this person who we thought was wonderful, that that idea itself was limited. You know, sometimes she's wonderful and sometimes she's not wonderful. That there isn't just one person there. There's many possible people. You know, so that person, how they are, it's dependent on the particular condition. Have you noticed this? Those of you who are, you know, have deep friendships or intimate relationships, you notice how it is sometimes, like where you see something in your partner and you're shocked, like that's not the person I married or that's not the person... You know, I would never be friends with a person like that. And and it's almost like, why did you change? But it was our primitive notion that this is the person. You know, we have this idealistic notion. Sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive. But, you know, we're creating these set concepts of everything. This is the, the really destructive thing in the world. The world itself is just the world. Nature can't be good or bad. You know, like, go out into the North Woods. Is it good or bad? I mean, you could look at the North Woods and see all the things that are off about it. You know, like, oh, that tree fell down, or that, you know, there's too many mosquitoes. Or, But when you, when you look in a more honest way, nature isn't good or bad. It's just the way that it is. And when people get idealistic about how beautiful nature, it, nature is, you, actually, you can notice that's, a, that's actually not correct. It's neither beautiful or wonderful or bad. It's just what it is. And this is true in terms of all aspects of nature, including this gathering right now or common ground or politics in the United States, which is so easy to see a particular way. But it's just nature. You know, if we watched a bunch of... Uh, Birds uh, fighting with each other to mate with the, the female. You know, we could see that as just sort of a really interesting, beautiful play of nature. Or we could look at it another way, like, boy, they're aggressive. Boy, they're being mean with each other. Boy, is that stupid, you know, how they treat each other, how they, you know, spend all that energy to create the sort of flamboyant colors or to do the stupid dance that the birds do. And, you know, you could just, you could be really critical of it. But when we stand back, we realize, well, it's neither good nor bad. It's just the way that it is. Things have unfolded, cause and effect in these, this diverse and intricate way. 
And it and any idea of it being good or bad is something we're imposing. It's in a way an act of violence. This idea that something is good or bad, it is a very primitive and uh, narrow projection of our mind on reality. This is what needs to cease. And the way that that ends is simply by starting to pay attention. When we pay attention in a balanced way, meaning there's calm and there's brightness or interest in the mind, the thing that begins to stand out is this extra thing that the mind, the human mind is doing, our human mind is doing. This, these projections then that we get confused by, we get identified with our projections, and we live in a sense inside of them. And this is an act of violence, first and foremost, on ourselves. And then through ripple effects, it affects everybody else. And you know what it's like being around somebody who has a very narrow, heavy projection going on. It's really hard to be around those people. We either tend to get sucked in to their strong, narrow, tight perspective, or we feel we need to fix them. <clears throat> so we create our own narrow perspective, like, you're wrong, <laughs> you're bad. I see this all the time with my wife and with other people that, you know, I'll see they'll be stuck in some narrow perspective. <laughs> it's like, what is that line in the Bible, how... You know, you notice a little sliver in somebody's hand, but you don't notice. Did anybody know the line from the Bible? The big log? Right? The what? Yeah, yeah. Do you know the whole? But anyway, you get the idea that <laughs> we can be very critical, but not realize that the critical mind itself is the big gorilla in the room. Our critical mind, not we're picking up in somebody else because right now in our existential situation the suffering isn't this person acting out his or her drama the real suffering is this big gorilla me thinking this is a problem me thinking it shouldn't be this way people shouldn't be acting this way that's the suffering and that's what we keep missing we miss it we miss it and we miss it I mean Politicians do what they do. They're living out greed, anger, and delusion just like we are. But it really occurs to me when I'm reading the news to notice the greed, anger, and delusion I feel around what I'm reading. But I'm very good at noticing. It, you know, reading between the lines, you know, and, and making uh, up ideas about who this person is and how they're off or what they should be doing that would be better and how they how life should punish them you know thank God for karma yeah it goes around comes around right and we can without ever noticing that that's real hatred and it hurts you know it's like that's the big gorilla in the room it hurts if I really had an ounce of compassion I'd look at that and I go oh honey this hurts how about we put this down how about we stop being so mean and critical and hateful? How about we understand that human beings have a lot of confusion in their minds, a lot of greed and aversion in their minds, like this, <laughs> you know, like this criticism, this critical mind that wants politicians to be punished, wants karma, whoever that is, to 
strike them down. You bad, bad boy. So we get inspired to train the mind because we start locating that this is where that monster is. Not out in the world. The monster, that's another line that I won't be able to remember, you know. I've seen the monster, you know, and it's here. It's right here. It's not out there somewhere. But it, actually, it seems like a problem, but it's a, a huge, huge step. Because now, we're actually addressing what needs to be addressed. Before we're in what the Buddha would call samsara, the cycles of suffering, we understand that we're suffering, but our reaction to the suffering is the cause of the suffering. So we keep going around in circles. We project the problem out there. We react out there. And we that, that sort of missing the point is the cause for suffering in the world, in our hearts and in the world. So we locate it here. We, it's like the first step to spiritual maturity where we own responsibility for being a suffering human being. Nobody makes us suffer. The suffering arises due to the understanding of the mind not being in alignment with the way things are. That is basic ignorance. The solution is seeing things clearly, which is why there's such a big emphasis on mindfulness on clear seeing, on insight in this tradition of practice. And so much of the work we do is developing the different mental qualities that support clear seeing. And you know, it's easy to talk about it in a more complicated way, but basically the qualities that have to do with raising the energy in the mind and qualities that have to do with balancing and tranquilizing the mind. And it almost sounds like well, you're going in opposite directions. But as we learn how to raise the energy of the mind, and as we learn how to tranquilize the mind, we're realizing how there can be energy without agitation, and how there can be tranquility without dullness. So these are the initial insights we get as we get inspired to train the mind and to, to do this practice, is that actually we can be very alert without being restless, without having agendas. Normally, if I want to get alert, I'll generate a lot of fear. That's one of the easiest ways to get alert. Like, oh my god, i got a lot of work to do. And I start thinking about all the things I should have done last week or two weeks ago that haven't been done. You know, I start getting some energy in the mind. You know, that feeling. Or I get a lot of greed. Like, if I get all this done, it's going to be great. Common ground will be great. And that energy you know, can, uh, that, that excitement, that greed, can feed us, feed the mind with energy. But it's possible to, to have this alertness, this brightness, this powerful energy in the mind without it being uh, distorted by fear or aversion or greed. And that's an insight, how to do that. So we just have to start to play with it and as we generate it, we tease out what's unwholesome. It's the same with tranquility. How to calm the mind down. How to learn how to rest in stillness without getting dull, without getting attached to the dullness, to the sort of uh, like using it as a, an escape, like getting out of our life. We're going to put ourselves in some trance, 
you know, like overeat and, you know, stare at a movie TV screen too long, some way to dull out, use drugs, alcohol, talk endlessly, you know, just to, just to dull out. But how can we be relaxed, tranquil, without being dull? How can we be alive, bright, without being agitated? And you see, this is what we mean by that balance. When the mind comes into that balance, then it just becomes so obvious how our different conditioned habits of greed and aversion and distraction, how unproductive they are. They become unbearable. Doesn't mean we don't do them, but if we do fall into one of those conditioned habits because it has a lot of momentum, it's a powerful lesson. It's like, you know, deciding we're going to go get honey by digging into a beehive. And we get stung, 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 stung. Well, we're not going to do it again. We only have to make that mistake once. The reason we keep making the mistake of acting out our greed and our aversion and our delusion over and over again is because we're not awake to the, the natural feedback mechanism. We do get screwed when we act out of greed and aversion and fear and confusion. But we're so confused, so um, um, distorted by those afflictive states, those heavy points of view, we don't have the sensitivity to get the natural feedback from having been unskillful. I mean, why else do we, I mean, we observe it, of course, better in watching other people than we do seeing it in ourselves. Why do we keep repeating patterns that are so destructive? We're not stupid, but the problem is the, um, the mind isn't sensitive enough to get the cause and effect. So that's why the Buddha emphasizes clear seeing. Once there's clear seeing, you don't really need anything else. The whole process of samsara, of negative cycles repeating, starts to fall apart because it depends on not seeing clearly. That is the proximate cause for samsara, repeating cycles of stress and suffering, is to be so overwhelmed by our negative habits of greed, anger, and delusion that there's no or very little sensitivity. Mostly the mind is distorted. It's confused by what it's experiencing. And when we're confused, when we're out of balance, the most important thing, this is an unfortunate, I think an unfortunate truth for human beings, the most important thing for us when we're out of balance, thrown off balance, is we want to have a sense of knowing what's going on, right? Sometimes my wife tells a funny story about me. In the middle of the night, this is long ago in the early 90s, we had our car parked outside of our house, and somebody was breaking into it, and the police happened to drive by, or maybe a neighbor called the police. And Anyway, he was caught. The person was caught. And in the middle of the night, it must have been three or so, the police knock on her door, but really hard. Boom, 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 boom. And I just freaked out. I didn't know what it was. And my mind, I saw my mind racing for like some exp explanation what could be possibly happening. But I couldn't. And the more I tried, you know, the more desperate I... 
and my wife likes to tell the story because what I did, evidently, I don't remember very clearly, but I started to control her. I, I started to shout at her, just relax. <laughs> and, it, and it's an example of, it's like, when we're totally under the influence of something negative like fear, in that case, you know, being really afraid because I couldn't figure out what was going on, the mind desperately tries to act out of something it knows, like to take control or to be the one in control. And, you know, it just is so, I mean, that wasn't terribly destructive, but because my wife understood what was going on. But, you know, I could have really done something stupid in that situation. You know, like, if I had a gun, well, don't ask questions, just shoot or something. You know, you imagine what people do when they're under the influence of that kind of fear and the mind, more than anything, is desperate to be in control. It's not willing to be relaxed. Well, let's see what's going on. Let me just relax, be clear, you know. That's not a possibility in that moment. So we want to generate a devotion to clear seeing based on the fact we know how easy it is to be destructive. That the world needs more than anything else human beings to be dropping out of the cycles of samsara into a path that actually allows for the unwinding. So when we invest in clear seeing, this is what this is what happens. Ignorance can't continue. It's like uh, another metaphor that's used even back at the time of the Buddha was. Like if you have a dark room, you know, as soon as you light a candle or as soon as you open the window, light comes in. It doesn't matter how long that room was dark. It could be centuries. But as soon as you bring light into it, there's light. Now, it may be dank. There may be a lot of cobwebs. But it's, you see, it's not dark anymore. And this is how it is once we have a sense of the power of mindfulness gets under our skin, in a sense. It's hard. I mean, we can forget about the practice. Life gets stressed out. We get caught up in our cycles of samsara. But after a while, it gets so under our skin that it's really hard to let it go. Now, it's messy, you know, using that image, lighting a candle in a room that's been dark for a long, long, long time. It can be really dank and ugly. But... There's, this, there's a sense of it being healing to see, oh, it's like this. This is how it is. So one of the things we notice when we start being mindful, we notice our habit energy. We notice how much we want to go back into the dark. Trust anger because it's what we know. Trust greed because it's what we know. Trust distraction and denial because it's what we know. And that we have a dependency on certainty more than we have an inclination for the truth. And this is what we're changing. We're weakening our dependency for certainty because our old habits provide the semblance of certainty. That's why we go there. That's why there's a gravitational pull. We feel comfortable. I feel comfortable in the role of being controlling. You know, other people maybe feel comfortable in the role of being the victim or whatever. You know, there's probably hundreds of different modes that we have a habit of getting lost in. Each of us, we should know our own predominant
patterns that we tend to get lost in so we can recognize them quickly. And like I said, if we see them at least to some degree with mindfulness, we'll realize, honey, that is not the way. Now, I may not be able to stop myself from being controlling in this moment, but at least I can prevent myself from believing that this is the way. So instead, I'm being, you know, the gravitational pull of, of being controlling may be so strong, I'm going to act it out. But I can see very clearly that it's not working. I can see very clearly how the world is reacting to my controlling nature, or my greedy nature, or my fearful nature. And that reinforces, honey, this is not the way. So that eventually the momentum of that wisdom, honey, this is not the way, is greater than the old habit energy pulling us in that direction. And that's another little victory. So this is the problem with mindfulness. People start cultivating mindfulness. And mostly what we see is ourselves getting sucked into old patterns that we know better. We go, well, God, I didn't pick up mindfulness to keep doing what I've always done. But actually, this is a good start. Because if we continue, if we keep paying attention, even when we're acting out our old habits, it's reforming them. It's a rewiring of the mind. And eventually, we won't do them. There will be enough wisdom that we'll know we, we'll be there. We'll still feel the impulse to do it. So it's still not, we're still not out of the woods. But the vigilance and the certainty that's arisen in the mind, this is not the way. I'm telling you, Mark, this is not the way. That sort of sweet, loving wisdom is our real friend. And where, does it, where did it come from? It just came from paying attention. Wisdom is just a cumulative experience when the experience is received with awareness, that clear awareness, right? When the experience isn't being distorted. So anytime we're mindful, then our experience is like golden data, you know, that gets integrated, becomes part of who we are in a sense the structure, the conditioning of the mind. Right now, our mind is mostly built upon data that is not golden. <laughs> you know, it's data seen through the eyes of fear or seen through the eyes of greed. So what we bring, what we manifest in a moment in our life, all that information that's arising when we enter a particular situation in our life, it's been influenced by greed and aversion and delusion. So of course, our inclinations are not to be trusted. So initially, mindfulness has a sense of being withdrawn. But it's not that being withdrawn is ultimately a useful strategy in life. It's not. But it can be a very useful initial strategy as we develop the practice. Because it's, and you know, people think it's about being passive. It's not being passive. We are quite actively restraining ourselves from acting in ways that we have some inclination are not good for us. So it's a very powerful, forceful statement. I'm not going to do that. This doesn't feel good. But later, then we'll have other, we'll creatively, we'll find other ways to express yourself in that moment, to respond to that moment. But initially, the best we can do is just to restrain ourselves from doing what we know doesn't work or isn't appropriate. We have to be willing to tolerate that middle ground, just being patient. Knowing what we do know, I know 
what I'm inclined to do isn't the right thing. So we're willing to just be patient and to restrain ourselves. But it isn't the it's just the phase. You know, in some places in our life, we're beyond that phase. In other places in our life, we're just beginning to see how we're unskillful. You know, so we only see that when we're actually in the middle of being unskillful. Because we start learning first with the gross places where our unskillfulness is very obvious. But there are many places where the way greed or hatred, aversion, fear manifests, it's very subtle. We don't catch it right away. We think we have this delusion that we're being really skillful. And then all of a sudden we realize, oh, I'm not being compassionate. This is neediness. I just need my friends to think of me a particular way. That's why I'm doing this. It's like this sudden insight or realization how so much of our activity is really coming out of neurotic places. But that's a good thing to see in practice. So this is just uh, somewhat of a summary. Some of you know I, I wrote some notes, um, just simple notes from the last 10 weeks of talks where we talked about how we abandon what's in the way of clear seeing, how we cultivate the qualities of tranquility and brightness to develop samadhi or this clear scene in order to deepen insight. So you can get a hold of a copy if you didn't get one yet. But I'll end it here so that we have more time tonight to talk with each other. I'm sure a lot of people in the group have their own experiences of working with your practice that might be relevant in the conversation tonight or questions about what I've said over the weeks. So whatever comes to mind. And please say your name if you decide to speak up. So any thoughts people have? Yeah, Jenny. Yes, Jenny. Um, two things. One, uh, part of what you're talking about made me think of. Uh, I listened to Christian Tibbetts' Dean today, and they had the Dalai Lama's interpreter on. I don't know if you've heard that, but it was a really great interview about a lot of different things. But um, the one that I thought was really interesting was he, he was talking about he was a monk for 20 some years or whatever, and then he became, then he became a householder, and so she was. Asking about that, and he was talking about how much his training as a monk, you know, prepared him for being in a partnership because, you know, all the stuff that you normally get reactive about with your partner, you know, he let a lot of that slide where you can see, it's just what you're talking about, you know, to have to see when you're getting in that trap about this other person that you're with. But uh, anyway, that was pretty interesting too. Um, if anybody hasn't heard it. Speaking of faith is the program. Yeah, but they call it being now. Oh, they changed the yeah, name? Yeah, they changed the name. Oh. Uh, public uh, radio. Yeah. Minnesota Public Radio. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thanks, um, Jenny. Yeah, yeah, anyway, it was a great, great interview. And, but anyway, I mean, a lot of this is what I've been, I've been kind of reflecting on, too, you know, where you, I, I catch myself doing something either, you know, being really busy. I have more free time now because I have less obligations, but I would find myself creating stuff just to do, just out of kind of greed, you know, and I wouldn't be happy doing it all, you know, I'd find that I was just, you know, creating stress in my own life, and, you know, but when I really took the time to really 
just watch him before I went to do that next thing that I didn't really have to do, just kind of watching how he's just getting all agitated about it. And just like, say, do you really want to do this, or are you just doing it? And I said, no, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so just that whole paying attention to what it all feels like is a really, really powerful. And it's a powerful step for a lot of reasons. One is it's a step towards self-reliance or independence, where we're becoming, the mind, heart is becoming independent of its conditioning. You know, the conditioning we've got from our parents, our culture, genetics. And right now, you know, mostly, most of us, most of the time, we're living out of that conditioning. And just that step towards being able to notice the conditioning, it's still going to be there. But being aware of it is not the same thing as being identified or lost in it. And it creates the possibility of choice. I may feel a compulsion to do, like Jenny just said. But now that I'm aware that there's a compulsion to do, I have a choice. I can just feel the compulsion as a compulsion to do, or I can get swept away with it. Well, that's tremendous to have that choice. So much of what we do is just out of compulsion, but it doesn't have to be that way. Thanks, Jenny. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Brad. Uh, your comment about uh, catching ourselves doing things and then realizing we're doing it more and more, I thought that a lot. But it, it's, it's interesting that uh, I can now start telling myself the difference but I was a little troublesome at first to realize how often I was doing something. Some of it's also triggered by um, familiarity. I go the same direction a lot of times, and for some reason, certain areas won't get me to thinking, and then I'll have unskillful thoughts. The same ones over and over. Yeah. However, now I catch myself. I can't. I haven't stopped doing it, but I catch myself. I mean, this, this was well into my practice, 15 years into my practice, when I, I, I really started to see clearly how my mind would create, either by taking a particular situation in the world or a particular situation in my life, I'd create, I'd remember this particular situation, or I'd completely concoct it if I didn't have something to draw upon, where self-righteous energy was really felt right. It sort of fit the story. And then I would, you know, my mind would lock in to that, you know, feeling righteous. And finally, it kind of occurred to me, is this the pattern I want to keep reinforcing in my mind? Does this feel good? No, it does not feel good. But it was just a habit. And I had to tease out that habit by really noticing what that feels like when I get into that self-righteousness and really seeing how destructive it is. Because even though it may seem innocuous for me to just concoct that and play with it, you know, but then the trouble is if I keep reinforcing it in my dreams or in my fantasies or whatever, then when the situation arises, that is so well greased, that habit pattern, that all of a sudden this amazingly self-righteous person would arise. 
And it would be like, well, where did that person come from? That's not who I am. But actually, that is who I am. That, that is a pattern that had been reinforced over and over in my mind. So, <clears throat> you know, the last 10, 15 years, I've been really trying to catch that. <clears throat> and I really try not, like when I do read the news, <clears throat> I really try not to do any of that in my mind anymore because I've just seen how destructive it is when it manifests with my wife or manifests in my interactions with people. That self-righteous energy, it's just really ugly. And I, you know, so humiliating. And I have every incentive not to be reinforcing it, you know, from an ego level to spiritual level. You know, why would anybody, when they really see what it is to be self-righteous, why would we do that? Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, Eric. Um, yeah, I remember, you know, when I first started practicing it, you know, there was a rush sort of at the beginning where it became really easy to see all these things that I was sort of um, acting out. And so that was uh, good momentum. I notice now, though, um, it's very tricky because I'll notice myself doing something and I'll judge. So judging mind for having done it. And then it's like, you know, seeing a mirror in a mirror and it just kind of keeps going and yeah. chasing it. And then to complicate it, it's like if I am able to have a moment of mindfulness, I'll be proud. And on and on. And, you know, so to it's like I can't get to the top of the mountain where I'm like, oh, I'm just watching that whole thing happen. And it's just, you know, it's a real um, tight physical experience, too. So I get, it's tricky. So. We should just stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I'm reading Jack Kornfield, one of his books, and two of his books. And he had something similar, Ajahn Chah's notes. <laughs> But, but the thing is, what we can do, I mean, there's two approaches. One is to exercise some willfulness, like to really, you know, create a resolve to stop it. But the, you can experiment with that. But the other thing to experiment with is, in a sense, to step back and to notice when you're judging, oh, this is painful, this hurts, this is dukkha. And when you're seeing clearly and things tend to unwind, you're saying, oh, this is clear seeing, this is release. This is liberation. This is dukkha. This is liberation. So basically to let the mind do what it's doing. But when the mind is creating dukkha, you know the mind is creating dukkha. When the mind is setting emotion release and freedom, you're noticing that. And you're not, you don't have a preference. Practice not having a preference. Because here's the thing. When we use a more gross strategy like to restrain ourselves, then it reinforces the sense of self. When we rely more on wisdom, which is an impersonal force in the mind, to just see how it is. Oh, this is dukkha. This is release. <clears throat> this is dukkha. This is release. It doesn't reinforce a sense of self. If a sense of self does arise, we'll either notice it's dukkha or non-dukkha. You know. So that's why the Buddha put a real emphasis on Dukkha and non-dukkha. Remember, some of you might not know, but once the Buddha said this particular phrase that is quite famous now in the Buddhist the tradition, 
which is I teach only one thing, dukkha and the end of dukkha. And that's not meant to be some sort of abstract principle. It's meant to be moment by moment in our practice. Dukkha, not dukkha. Dukkha, not dukkha. That is our practice. Our practice is nothing more than that. It's not about following the breath. It's when the mind is knowing the in-breath, is it dukkha or non-dukkha? When the mind is following the out-breath, is it dukkha or not dukkha? When the mind gets distracted, is it dukkha or dukkha? When the mind is trying really hard to be a good meditator, is it dukkha or not dukkha? When the mind doesn't care whether it's a good meditator or not, is that dukkha or not dukkha? That's our only true barometer for whether the mind is being skillful. Like, we want to cultivate an alignment, as I said earlier, or a skillfulness. But how do we know whether we're being skillful? It has to be direct. The feedback is direct. If we're skillful, it's setting emotion release. When the mind is unskillful, it's setting emotion tension. It's that simple. So dukkha, no dukkha. So don't worry about it. It sounds really good because there's a lot of moments of mindfulness in the way you describe you know, how you practice goes sometimes. Yeah, I appreciate that the simplification, just even the, the change of language from its judgment or its self-judgment. Yeah. Yeah, and it's probably good for all of us. Like, uh, especially for daily life practice, if we just have two notes, you know, skillful, unskillful, but not in a judgmental sense. But when we say unskillful or dukkha, it just means that however the mind is relating, we see directly that it seems to be leading to tension and stress and heaviness and narrowness. And when we say non-dukkha or skillful, all we're saying is that somehow we're discerning that the mind is opening up, it's releasing, there's less heaviness, less tightness or narrowness in the mind. And so it's almost like the, what we're doing is we're uh, watering the force of wisdom. We'd like wisdom to be active. So moment by moment, whether we're sitting in meditation or just out in the world, there is this impersonal force operating in the mind that's knowing dukkha or non-dukkha, skillful or not skillful. But in an impersonal, non-judgmental way, it's just noting, discerning how it is. Then, very quickly, our practice would develop if we, if we had that going on. So that's the hard work of practice is basically creating the momentum of that force of wisdom. We're setting in motion by, first of all, we as an ego being, you know, we say, hey, I'd like that kind of wisdom going on. So we set it in motion. But then there's a place in the practice where we have to let go. Instead of me wisely discerning whether I'm being skillful or not, we notice that the wisdom happens without an identification with being the wise one figuring it out. And that's an important place in practice where we realize that the wisdom has its own momentum Nobody has to drive it. Nobody has to make that discernment happen. It just happens. But that's, you know, that will happen when it happens, or we'll recognize that when we recognize that. Time for one more comment or question. If there's anything else? Yeah, Graham. Um, 
Last week you kind of encouraged us to pay attention to pleasant things. Yeah. And so I did that and followed that instruction for at least for a few days. What did you learn? Well, in Monday morning, I just, I guess it just helped me, you know, like in my week. And, um, Monday morning when I hit the snooze button, <laughs> I really kind of like enjoyed those 10 minutes, you know, like, Instead of, <laughs> instead of just dreading, yeah, 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 yeah. Up, I was like, I'm hitting snooze, and I'm gonna like really enjoy that time. You know? uh, so instead of focusing on, you know what I mean? Instead of focusing on the negative of how I didn't want to do something, it was like the positive of I don't have to do it quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it's really true. I mean, this may seem like uh, a rationalization, but the thing is, the choice to hit the snooze button had happened, right? So now the question is, having hit the snooze button, what is the skillful? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's always the question, like, because we feel suffering is sometimes justified. I'm being bad. I should suffer. But who teaches that? You know, what wise person teaches, we've been bad, you should suffer. No. All the, you know, authentic teachers talk about forgiveness and love and letting go, you know. So we should take these teachings to heart in terms of how we relate. And this is an important practice, not just to do for a week, but for all of us. Because, like I mentioned, once we uh, get inspired about mindfulness and we're paying attention, we're going to see a lot of dukkha. We're going to see a lot of unskillfulness. And to balance it, we have to intentionally bring the mindfulness to pleasantness and beauty. We have to, because pain stands out. And that's what's going to get our attention. And then we're going to get withered. We're going to get exhausted by mindfulness. Because all we're seeing is our negative habits. And even worse, we're going to see everybody else's negative habits because we're paying more attention in life. So we have to consciously intend to notice what's beautiful. And if you have Dharma friends, people who practice that are good friends, then when you hang out together, you have to ask each other, okay, tell me 15 beautiful things you were awake to in the last day or so. You know, I want to hear about them. And when we notice it, then like Graham suggests, we want to. It's. We don't need to be afraid of pleasantness. Just like we don't need to be afraid of the pain in the knee. We practice really opening to it, relaxing with it, getting interested in it. So we're allowing whatever it is that's pleasant to blossom. And if underneath that pleasantness is a neurotic fear that I'm ruining my life by sleeping for more than ten minutes, then at some point we can let go of this and we can practice being awake to something unpleasant. And they, you know, they can coexist. Sometimes the mind sees this, and sometimes it sees this. The same thing with a flower. You can see the beauty of it, and in the next moment, you could already see that it's starting to fade and fall apart, and pretty soon will not be a flower anymore. So this is the ideal in practice, is to be able to um, be really nimble in that way, to see, to include the whole perspective. So we're not dependent on things being beautiful. We're not dependent on things being bad. We can include everything. And that's what we, that's another way of understanding the balanced mind. So I think we need to leave it here. Thanks for your comments, everyone. Let's take a, a few seconds and 
let go of the words, take a breath or two together. And it's nice to appreciate these practical, wise teachings that have come down through the centuries, generation by generation. Men and women just like us, with neurotic minds, doing the best they can to cultivate clear seeing, sharing what they've learned as best they could. And we get to be the beneficiaries of their good practice. So we do our best to cultivate the practice in our own lives, to be causes for wisdom and compassion, causes for peace and ease in the world in our hearts and in the world. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Nice to see everybody tonight.